800 miles of trails, 400 miles of roadways, and Purple Mountain's majesty as far as the eye can see. On this week's episode of the RV Miles Podcast, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Welcome to the RV Miles Podcast, your home for RV and camping news, reviews, travel guides, and more. I'm Jason. And I'm Abby, and this is episode 14 of the RV Miles Podcast for Thursday, October 26th, 2017. If you'd like to keep up with RV Miles, you can do so on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you'd like to get today's show notes, you can do so at rvmiles.com slash episode 14. And if you're interested in following along with Jason and I and our travels with our three boys, we are over at ourwanderingfamily.com and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On this episode, we're going to talk about America's most visited national park, almost by double the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. We're going to have some tips for driving your RV at night and pulling into a campground at night. But first, we've got a big news item. Yeah, this is like hot off the presses kind of news item. Uh, as we record this on Tuesday, the po- podcast will come out on Thursday. Maybe you'll all have heard about that. This, if you if you follow our Facebook page. <laughs> or Twitter. You know, National Parks... They're one of the last vacation opportunities that are affordable for low-income families. And it really saddens me to see that the National Park Service is considering increasing the entrance fee at 17 different national parks, the busiest ones, essentially, to $70 per car starting next year. That's a big increase. It's a hundred and eighty percent increase um, from the between thirty and thirty-five dollar per car fee, which as it is right now, which they just raised three years ago. Yeah. Plus, with the increase in the senior park pass, prices are going up, and I, I think an increase in the fees to national parks. Okay, that might be something that is important and worth exploring. But 180%? That's a lot of money. And we were just talking, um, I don't know if it was last week's podcast or the week before, that you know there's also sort of a push to privatize a lot of the inside of our parks when it comes to campgrounds. And that could lead to potential higher fees for camping in and around and near the parks. So there is this kind of growing concern now that what used to be the great American family vacation is now becoming the Great American Family Vacation equivalent to going to Disney World. And again, this is a proposal. The National Park Service is accepting feedback on the proposal, and we'll put the link up on the show notes to be able to provide that feedback, although the the, the link is not working at the moment. They it's seem currently to be, down. <laughs> they seem to be a little overrun <laughs> at the moment. Yeah, the response that we're seeing kind of across social media and then from even some community members in and around these parks is not very favorable. But again, you know, obviously you can tell from our, our reaction as we're talking about this. And again, we just kind of are digesting this information as we're getting it, but we're not super thrilled about it. And I think you can kind of tell in our voices. 
There is no doubt that there is a budget crisis with the National Park Service. No doubt at all. There are some major things that need to be addressed within that organization. I am not quite sure that the revenue that this will bring in, and they're saying that it could potentially bring in around $70 million next year. I am not quite sure that this is the way to bridge that gap. I'm also not quite sure that the numbers we saw this year, where we were seeing record number attendance at parks, I don't know we'll see that next year if you increase the fee for a car by 180%. Just to walk into the park next year, should this go through, will cost you $30. $50 if you're on a motorcycle, $70 if you're in a car during peak season. Yeah, which, so this wouldn't be an increase during the when late no fall, one goes on vacation, winter and early spring, but it it would be in through whatever they will define as the peak season, but it's 17 parks. I'll just run through them quick. Arches, Acadia, Bryce Canyon, Canyonlands, Denali, Glacier, Grand Canyon, Grand Teton, Mount Rainier, Olympic, Rocky Mountain, Sequoia and Kings Canyon, Shenandoah, Yellowstone, Yosemite and Zion. Uh, and under this proposal, the fee for the yearly pass will not increase. It'll stay at $80. So you might as well just buy the yearly pass. Right. In a lot of us RVers, it makes sense for us to have the yearly pass if we're going to be visiting, especially as full-timers, visiting more than one park in a year. But a lot of families, they don't vacation like that. They have their one big vacation a year. You know, you can go to the Grand Canyon or, you you know, you're driving down Route 66, you want to stop by the Grand Canyon for a day. It's just you and your convertible. Right. You're going to spend right. $70 to now go see the Grand Canyon? Maybe wow. not. I don't know. I guess we'll see. We'll see when this rolls through. I We've talked about this the last time when we were talking about the potential to have to have reservations to enter into some of the busier parks. I'll say it again. This is going to be an incredible time of change in our national park system. We're entering another hundred year, you know, we had our first hundred years. Now we're into our second and there are some massive growing pains that are happening. I don't know how this will shake down. I am so curious to see if we can actually get on the site to leave feedback, what the majority of people are saying about this, but from what I'm getting right now, it's not good. People are not happy. Well, I don't know what they expect. Nobody's going to leave a comment saying, oh, I like this fee increase. That's great. <laughs> so they're going to get a bunch. You know, it's, we it's, will go kicking and screaming to the entrance fee. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, I, I hesitantly think it's a done deal and that this public comment period is meaningless. But Well, let's, you know, let's not be pessimistic. Let's hopefully let democracy... Do what it's supposed to do, and the people shall have their say in whichever way the individual person wants to have their say towards this. And we will find out when 2018 rolls around whether or not we'll be paying $70 to get in and whether or not we will need a reservation in order to give those $70. Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing to me is, like, there are a lot of national parks that have no fee. The Great Smoky Mountain National Park being one of them, which it, we will talk about later. Right. And and that was that had to do with the fact that when North Carolina and Tennessee gave up the land, that was part of the agreement. And there are other reasons for a lot of the other parks. But I, I would almost rather see, you know, a $10 per car fee go into effect at a lot of those parks. 
Well, the argument, so the argument for that can be made that 80% of that entrance fee is supposed to stay inside that park with 20% then being spread out. Well, if our busiest parks need the most work, having a $10 entrance fee at a smaller park is not going to help that bigger park take care of its infrastructure needs. It's not going to repair that park's roads. Again, this is a budget crisis. The National Park Service has a lot of issues that it needs to address. Well, they're to be honest, their budget was slashed massively. Their budget has been yes, their budget has been slashed, and this feels a little bit like we will slash the budget and then we will put what is needed on the backs of the American people to figure out how to take care of. That's what it feels like right now. That's my knee-jerk reaction in the few hours I've had to kind of digest what is most likely going to happen next year inside our parks. I will say that we're we're tooling around Illinois and in some Illinois state parks (laughs) at the moment. And Illinois You are gonna go there, aren't you? (laughs) Illinois is our home state. All I all I want to say is if you compared it to Illinois state parks and the condition that they're in, the National Park Service is doing a phenomenal job. <laughs> yeah, they really are, aren't they? <laughs> With their resources. They are like the uh, five-star hotel of <laughs> And don't parks. get me wrong, Illinois State Parks are gorgeous, but the, the signage, the bathrooms, the buildings, it's all so old. Well, they just, they need a lot of love. Like, it really does seem like the last time anyone cared about this park that we're currently at and we're currently at starved rock which is like the most popular state park probably in the state of illinois it does kind of feel like the last time this park was kind of looked over in regards to infrastructure was like 1992 yeah i mean well they have they have construction signs out as permanent road signs (laughs) you know there's (laughs) we just left chain of lakes state park uh, a couple days ago, and it is full of trail signs that are completely unreadable. <laughs> the screen is shattered There's, on them. <laughs> you can't see the name. You can't see the map. It's just a rectangle. Yeah, and if the 90s was the last time Star of Rock had like their their <laughs> signs and their bathrooms looked at, 1970s was the last time Chana Lakes was touched. There, the visitor center at Chana Lakes State Park is literally out of the 70s as, as if as if you're just walking back in time the exhibits have not changed the signage is not, the is, bugs on the floor probably haven't left un- since the 1970s either so it's unbelievable it's, it's a it's, beautiful state park the roadways and the vegetation and the trails are all beautifully manicured <laughs> it's just the it's the facility yeah i mean come on let's let's <laughs> Let's not joke around here. This is the state of Illinois we're talking about, yeah, and, and it, we are the poster child for budget crisis, inability to get anything done. I think what we're like the second worst state in the country. So we're lucky I mean, the state we're even parks lo- yeah, are open. We're lucky they're even open because they have and, shut down multiple yeah. times over the last several yeah. years. So I mean, let's count our blessings and let's keep our glass half full at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so I think on that note, on a note of positivity. We should take a break. All right. When we come back, we're going to talk about driving and arriving at night.
Abigail. Jason. Are you ready for last week's brain teaser? Yes. Remember, it was Halloween themed. I do remember. And it's almost Halloween. I do. I remember. It was also a little grotesque. Yeah, there's murder involved. So if that's a you know sensitive subject for someone, turn the volume down right now for like 35 seconds. <laughs> okay. A factory worker is arrested and charged with a brutal murder after strong evidence points to him as the culprit. Later, he's implicated in several other crimes scattered across the country. But he was innocent. What had happened? And I gave you a few hints. His fingerprints were found at the murder scene and at some other crime scenes. He was not a criminal. He was incriminated because of his work. And then the biggest clue I gave you was that it is Halloween-related. I know, he's like a traveling salesman. He sells coffins or something. No, 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 no. He's Dr. Frankenstein. He's a ghost. He can't be implicated because he was the one murdered. I don't know. I can go on forever. Will you just give the answer, please? (laughs) The man worked in a factory that made Halloween items, including latex severed hands. He used his own hand as a model for the original latex mold. The product was just high quality enough to retain the whirls of his fingerprints and was used by several criminals to leave fake traces to throw off the police. How is anyone ever supposed to give you that answer, Jason? That is like the longest, most detailed answer. I mean, I was kind of close when I said he was a traveling salesman. He was traveling. It was just his rubber hand. Yeah. I don't. Severed ha- Halloween hands. We have one. We well, we don't keep we it don't with us one. anymore. But no, come on. We- <laughs> Creepy campground. No. We, I don't. Can we? <laughs> we'll have another. <laughs> fun little brain teaser for you at the end of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) All right, moving on. Let's talk about driving at night. Let's talk about it because we've done it a few times. Yeah. and More than I would like. Yeah. I'm not not a fan of driving. I am not a fan of driving. There are some benefits to driving at night. There's a lot less people on the road. Yes. Uh, It's cooler if it's a really hot day. Yes. But there are no benefits for the Epperson family to travel on the road. Because the last time we traveled at night, a child threw up unexpectedly. And I'm just going to leave it at that. (laughs) But let's get into this list. (laughs) Well, driving at night can can present itself with some problems. It's hard to, to see as much color. You can't see as far ahead of you. So it's hard to differentiate a pothole or a curb, for instance, from the road. Your stopping distance is decreased. You know, you're in a big RV, it takes a long time to stop. There are a lot of factors that that can really make it dangerous. Deer running across the road. Yeah, that's always my biggest fear. And I will say that in regards to night driving, when you're heading to a campground, most of the time, to get to that campground, you are going to have to get a little bit off the beaten path. So that means there's not going to be street lights. Visibility is going to get way decreased. And that's always my biggest concern when we're driving at night towards the campground, is that we cannot see sort of like what's coming out of 
the woods all around right. us. And I always expect Bambi and Bambi's mother to come running out any second. Just figuring out where you're going, finding the street signs, finding the signpost at your campsite. Yeah. It's all very hard at nighttime. But sometimes we have to do it. Sometimes there's just no choice, especially as we get later into the year and the days are shorter. Arriving at night is going to be more common than anybody yes. would like it And to you be. know what? In, for us, a few times, there have just been circumstances outside of our control. We fully admit that we are not the best at travel days. It's like something always sort of like goes crazy and delays us or we delay ourselves or we get stuck in traffic. Those things just kind of happen. We're trying to embrace them. But a lot of times when those things are out of our control is what ends up getting us to a campground later than we would like to be. So let's just dive into these tips and talk about how you can make it a little bit safer to travel at nighttime. So the first one is keep things clean. And when I say keep things clean, I'm talking about your headlights, your mirrors, and your windshield, and your side windows as well. You know, when I read that, I thought, oh, yes, I do really love to keep the inside of the RV clean on travel days, which no one else in my family <laughs> likes to. Like, you're always like, why are you sweeping? We're going to another campground. And I'm like, well, I'm sweeping because I like it to be nice and I don't want to take the dirt from one campground to another. So mm. when I read that, I thought, oh, wow, he's finally on board, keeping things clean. And then I read it and I was like, oh, <laughs> not on board. <laughs> you would be amazed at how much keeping your headlights clean and keeping your windshield clean improves visibility and how much, you know, fingerprints and smears and dirt on your headlights can reduce visibility. So it's really important to keep those things clean and keep checking your headlights. If, if the lens, the plastic lens on your headlights is starting to turn cloudy, that's greatly reducing the amount of light that is hitting the road. Yeah. So you can, there are, they do sell a polish that you can try. Sometimes you can sort of buff that cloudiness out, but you should also be able to very easily replace those headlight lenses. They should be available from your RV manufacturer or from, from your truck manufacturer. The next tip is to slow down. Obviously it makes a lot of sense, of course, but it's important to consider your stopping distance when you're driving and the amount that you can see in front of you. So if you can only see a limited distance in front of you and your stopping distance is only a certain, you know, is, go is going to be more than that, slowing down can greatly decrease the number of feet it takes to stop your RV. So for instance, if you slow down from 65 miles an hour to 60 miles an hour, you decrease your stopping distance by over 50 feet. And that's really going to help, you know, you not hit Bambi. Exactly. Third tip, aim your headlights. Did you know that your headlights can be aimed and should be aimed? No, I had no idea. They are adjustable. And we have a link to a tutorial for how to aim your headlights. Um, but the the main thing I want I want to put out here is that if you drive if you drive a truck and you're pulling a trailer, when your truck bed is weighed down from your trailer or whatever you might have loaded in it. The front end of your truck rises up, which means your headlights aren't pointed where they should be pointed at the road anymore. So it's important to adjust your headlights with your trailer hooked up, with your gas tank full, with the whole thing loaded down, so that you make sure your 
your headlights are hitting the right spot in the road. Along those lines, your high beams also need to be able to hit the road. And a lot of people call them their, your brights, but it's actually not just making your lights brighter. High beams are a separate beam that is higher up than your regular headlight beam and sort of wider. And you can see, you know, obviously further with it. So drive with your high beams on as much as possible, but obviously you want to have them off. But turn them off if someone's coming towards <laughs> if you, someone's please. someone's coming towards you, of course. <laughs> Tip <They're>... of the week. <laughs> If you have fog lights, if you're equipped with fog lights, use them. They're not just useful for fog. Fog lights are down low, they're spread wide, they cover a large portion of the road, and they can really help you see stuff that's close to you. They're down so low so they can actually light the road below the fog. But you can. there's nothing wrong with it. It's not the same thing as high beams. There's nothing wrong with having your fog lights on at all times when you're driving down the road. Dim your instrument panel. There's a reason the instrument panel on every vehicle has a dimmer from bright to dark. And that's because your eyes need to be able to adjust. So if your instrument panel is as bright as possible, as your eyes go back and forth between between your dash and the road, your iris is going to have to adjust every single time it goes back and forth. And that's really important for your GPS screen as well. We have a, this GPS in our, our van that we tow behind us that is supposed to automatically switch from daytime to nighttime colors. It does not do that. No, the sensor doesn't work for some reason. So, nope. but I'm always, I get in and we start driving. It's nighttime. I have to go in and switch it because I forget because it's so It's so bright, bright which is, is great. But it's great during the daytime when you need to see it. Yes. <laughs> not when you need it at night and your eyes are like bugging out. <laughs> Usually the nighttime mode on a GPS, it switches the colors. So the background is black and the foreground is a lighter color, white or green or whatever it might be. So those are sort of the lighting tips. Staying awake, obviously driving no. at night. No brainer. You, I mean, you, please stay awake. <laughs> you, well, not only does driving during the hours when you're normally would be sleeping cause you to be tired, but just driving e even in the early evening when you n would normally be asleep can make you tired. The There's not as much interesting stuff to see outside because there's no light. There, the white lines on the road can sort of lull you into a trance. Yeah. It can be boring. So, Man, it can be boring. <laughs> so a few tips to stay awake. The number one, I think, is to have your co-pilot talking to you. It's, it's But what if your co-pilot likes wants to, to sleep, sleep, Jason? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a problem. <laughs> it's a little bit of a problem. What I do is sing to myself. Yes, you do. I do. I play music and I sing. Yes, you do. Because it keeps me awake. Um, so that's an option. But some other things that you can think about to help you stay alert, not awake. If you feel like you're going to fall asleep, you need to pull over and stop, right? But just to stay alert, if you raise the back of your seat up a little bit and get into a better posture where you're sort of leaned slightly forward, not in anything dangerous, but where you're more upright, You'll be a more, you'll feel more alert. If you move your seat forward a little bit to where your legs sort of bent at a little bit of an action pose on the accelerator. Not anything dangerous or uncomfortable, but again, that's going to help you feel a little more alert. Don't use your cruise control. You can get really comfortable with your cruise control on. Yeah, you get that leg tucked up next to you <laughs> on the seat. You're just good to go. And it's kind of interesting, like, as you go through all of these things, I'm thinking to myself, well, this is like, this is a no-brainer. Of course you should do this. Of course you shouldn't do that. But it's kind of amazing how much we forget that these 
steps are what can kind of make traveling in the night easier for us. Just yeah. because I think, at least in our experience, I would say 25% of all the driving we have done getting from point A to point B has been at night. So it's not something we're doing on a very regular basis. So some of these like really basic ideas, you're not thinking about them because all you're thinking about is, I just want to get to that campground. I just want to get set up. That's the thing, I just want to get the kids in bed. At night, there's often like this urgency of trying to get there. And so you can you often end up driving a little faster than you should be, especially because there's less people on the road. You're more comfortable. And that can be, you know, really dangerous to do. Yeah. And I just think as simple and as sort of like, you know, light bulb turning on kind of article this is, it's still just really good to go back and read it every once in a while and remind yourself that these are the things that are really important to kind of make sure you are implementing when you're driving at night. Yeah. A couple other things to keep yourself awake and alert is to keep it a little bit cooler inside the RV or the truck than you normally would. Roll that window down. <laughs> keep well. Keep the air moving. Fresh yeah. air is definitely fresh going, air is always a great answer. And then stop frequently. Get out. Stretch your legs. Have a snack. Have something to drink. That's kind of my rule across the board, though. Even when we're traveling during the day, I think it's really important to stop and get out and stretch your body and just take a a brief, brisk walk, like just to get stuff moving and kind of clear your mind and then get back in and continue on your journey. Yeah. And then again, if if you do feel like dozing off, stop immediately. Pull over. You're in an RV. You can go anywhere. Stop. Get some rest. It's not worth it. I know all of us have had that experience where we start to doze off when we're driving and then we jump up and we're alert all of a sudden. Terrifying. It is terrifying. But then you feel like you have all of this energy because you're all of a sudden immediately alert and adrenaline has kicked in. But that's not going to last. No, it's not going to last. It's going to go away very quickly. So you really need, when that happens, preferably way before that happens, you need to get off the road. Yeah, absolutely. So let's say you get to the campground and it's night. What do we do? So the first thing you need to make sure to do is check to see that the campground is going to be open when you arrive. Yeah. <laughs> Before you even get to the campground, make sure you know whether or not I can arrive at 10 o'clock and the gates are going to be open. Yeah, a lot of campgrounds will stop letting people in after 10, some even as early as 8, maybe even earlier. I don't know. Uh, but we've definitely seen 8 o'clock. Make sure to check, especially if you, even if you plan on arriving at 6 Just check to see what the hours are, just in case you end up arriving late, you decide to stop for dinner, whatever you might do. Yeah, and my advice on that is don't trust the website. Call the gate or call the office and have someone verbally tell you, these are the hours we are open today. Because I cannot tell you how often these websites, especially like for the state and kind of like city parks, RVs, they don't get updated that much, or they might switch their seasonal hours, and they don't put that on there. And so just having someone verbally tell you that is such a a good peace of mind to have. Especially if it's a no-reservation park, or you don't have reservations, they might not expect anybody coming, and they might go home early, that type of thing. So yeah, be really careful about that, and, and just let them know that you're coming. Even if there's no reservation, say, hey, I'm coming in tonight. I'll be there around seven o'clock, I think. Just wanted to double check that that's going to be okay. And it, it almost always is, but we always do that to make sure. And along those lines, 
have their phone number, have the campground's phone number handy if you think you're going to be arriving in the evening. Because I can't tell you how many times we've had to call back and say, eh, it looks like we're going to be there at 8 now. Uh, maybe it's going to be 8.30 now. I'm sorry. Do you mind if we show up at 9? Like, always they're very much like, oh, yeah, that's fine. But I'm sure the phone rings and they're like, oh, <laughs> it's those persons again. <laughs> if you're going to be arriving late, Try to book a pull-through site if you can, if you can find a campground that's got one available in that area, especially if you're just overnighting for one night. It makes it a lot easier when you arrive to just be able to pull into a site instead of having to back in. Or, you know, the next, if you have, if you're towing a car behind you, the next morning having to hook up your car and all that sort of stuff, pull-through can really save you big time. When you get to the campground, make sure that you check out the space before you back into it. So when you pull up, you know, you pull into the campground, you, you, whatever, you get the map or they give you your little permit, you drive through and you find your site. First of all, it's really handy to have a flashlight with you while you're driving to be able to point out the window and find the site markers because some of these campgrounds are super dark, super dark. (laughs) So having a flashlight can be really helpful with that. We have this zoomable one that I really love that you actually can, you can move it from being like a wide angle flashlight to like a really tight yeah, beam. Yeah, it's cool. And the tight beam you can see really, really far away with. So that's really helpful to have. When you, when you get to the site, pull up next to it. Don't just have the co-pilot person get out and look around. Driver should get out as well. Go look around the site because you're not seeing the obstructions that you might've saw during the daytime pulling up. Look up at the tree branches Look across the road at the signposts and things that the front end might hit while you're backing in and make sure that you're, you are cognizant of where all those things are because your co-pilot is going to be, is going to have a tougher job than normal at nighttime. They can't really back you in as easily. Their biggest job is going to have to be pointing a flashlight at something that you might hit and just yelling out, stop better yet using the flashlight to signal you to stop. So you really need to know where stuff is and and have a plan of action for backing in if you're by yourself you know get somebody around if if people are out and about still get somebody to help back you in there's no shame in that and people love to come over and help (laughs) you back in your rig like (laughs) it is known across campgrounds if you ask they will come (laughs) sometimes if you don't ask (laughs) sometimes if you don't ask they will still come over and want to help you. <laughs> and if you're around watching somebody pull in at night, there's nothing wrong with offering to help. But don't take it over. Don't get in their way. <laughs> no. Don't bother them. The best thing you can do if you're a neighbor standing by, you can grab a flashlight and you can point it at their electrical post or their picnic table or whatever so they, they can see it. If you're by yourself and you don't have any of that help, one of the best things I can recommend is taking three or four flashlights outside lay them on the ground, point them at the obstacles so that you can see them as you back in. And last, but certainly not least, just be kind of like courteous if you're showing up really late, that it's kind of wind down time in the campground, you know, maybe set up that like screened in tent and, you know, your hammock and get out all your chairs, like maybe do that like in the morning. Yeah. Just plug in the electric. Well, no, the quiet hours. (laughs) If it's after the quiet hours... There's absolutely no reason you should be setting up your campsite. 
No, but I mean, you know, sometimes quiet hours don't start till like 10 or 11. Yeah. And I don't know. Part of me is like, if I showed up somewhere at like nine o'clock at night and it was like pitch black, I don't think I would be like, okay, Jason, let's get the screen tent set yeah, up over guess... the picnic table and let's, let's like get this party started. Even, even quiet hours or even pre quiet hours shouldn't necessarily be make a lot of noise hours. You might have people sleeping right next to you. Yeah, so, I mean, like, get your camp chairs out, maybe, like, if you want to have a fire or something, like, that's fine. I'm just thinking of the full-on, like, pulling out the grill, you know, just all hammering in steaks, you know, stuff like that. Like, know, right? maybe just, maybe just think about doing that stuff in the morning yeah, when I you mean, don't need a headlamp or a flashlight in order to do I, it. I don't want to do any of that anyway. When I If it's a late drive when we just get in i just want to plug in and and yeah. get the inside set up our focus is different because with our kids and maybe even if you're traveling with pets or something yeah. your focus is a little bit different you just want to get in get set up and then your focus goes right to them like what are their needs what do i have to do in order to get them to sleep so that i can have some peace and quiet <laughs> on that note we'll be right back <laughs> and we're gonna talk about this the Great Smoky Mountain National Park and this week's brain teaser. All right, we are back and we are here to talk about the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, which is the most visited park. In the United States. Yeah, I think it's somewhere like 9 million people. 9 million v- visitors. It's nearly double the next busiest, which I can't remember if that's Zion. Yellowstone. Zion. But don't be afraid of that, that it's no, so busy. No, it's so huge. Be- because it's massive. And most of those visitors, honestly, are just driving through. Because it is free, and it is one way you can get from Tennessee into North Carolina. Yeah, if you enjoy walking and hiking then you will enjoy peace and quiet in this park. The Great Smoky Mountains National Park has 800 miles of trails. That's like a bucket list goal to say that you hiked all of the Great Smoky Mountains. That would be a lot of hiking. That would be a lot of hiking. (laughs) In fact, a large portion of the Appalachian Trail runs right through the Smoky Mountains. We walked on part of that trail. We did. For all of a like hot second. In addition to the 800 miles of hiking trails... There are almost 400 miles of roadways that go through the park. It is just massive. And a lot of the touring you can do of the park can be by car. So if you don't have the ability to hike, if that's not your thing, you can do a lot by car. You can go to a lot of little short trails that can lead you to a waterfall, some great visitor centers. I think just those points right there absolutely explain why it's the most popular park. In the national park system. It's, it's also a great location. There's not a lot of national parks around there. Yeah, it's a great for sure. location for a lot of East Coasters to come. And come up from the South and, and from the Midwest. So the Smoky Mountains are, they're mountains, of course, but the reason they're called Smoky Mountains is they give off this smoky haze. And it's the plants breathing. It's the trees giving off gases that make this smoky haze that is one of the most beautiful things. I remember seeing it for the very first time. I was actually driving to Disney World with some college friends. We left from Chicago very, very early in the morning. And as we hit the Smoky Mountains, driving through them is when the sun came up. And, you know, when you hear the phrase Purple Mountains Majesty, that's where that comes from. 
because it is all this beautiful purple gorgeous haze with the sun coming up yeah i don't think and we say this a lot when we talk about national parks that we have visited but i don't think pictures do it quite justice there's just something that you have to lay your eyes on the smoky mountains on this haze that kind of engulfs them to really understand like just how gorgeous it is when you get to the smoky mountains you'll first realize that it is very, very dense forest. And that's part of the reason why all these gases get given off is because they're just so much vegetation. They're just all on top of each other. I mean, it's so dense. It's just as far as the eye can see. So one of the best ways to get a good view of the park is to go right into the heart of it and go up to the top to the highest point, And that's called Klingman's Dome. And Klingman's Dome is an, you, you, you hike up like a half mile to an Yeah, so overlook. you can drive. You drive up all there, the way to the top. And then you have that short half mile hike. It's more of walking up like a big ramp to get up yeah. to an overlook <laughs> yeah. where you can see if it's really hazy or cloudy. You just it just looks like you're floating on a bunch of clouds. If there's not as much haze and clouds, you get to see the vastness of the mountain range. And there are many other locations where you can do that as well. Sometimes Kling's, Klingman's Dome. The road to Klingman's Dome is, is not open, yeah. Uh, even into like May, so it really depends on the kind of winter that the yeah. park has had and the conditions when they're going to open it up and allow you. So you know, just be just be forewarned. Like if you go in the spring, there is a good possibility that this road will still not be open. So there are two main ways to access the Smoky Mountains. There are several ways, but the two biggest ways are from the. Tennessee side and Gatlinburg Pigeon Forge area. And from the North Carolina side, from Cherokee, North Carolina. And what I love about that is that there are, it's like two totally different experiences. Yeah, we did both visitor centers and we we stayed on the Gatlinburg side. Yeah. But we took a day drive over to the North Carolina side. And it really is, like you said, two completely different sort of experiences but somehow they still feel like you are in one big giant park. Yeah, and on the on the North Carolina side, your Cherokee is there's an Indian reservation and you can you can see a lot of native American culture, but you can also visit Asheville, North Carolina, you can go to the Biltmore estate. And then on the Tennessee side, you've got Gatlinburg which sort of feels like this rustic sort of like throwback mountain to, town yeah. with with lots of nice restaurants and, and lots Shop of like- Shop local in Gatlinburg. It's foodie. It's, you know, it's it kind of reminds me a lot of sort of like what you'd see at Vale or, you know, in Colorado, Estes Park. I would say like- it's like, it's a, to me, it's a combination of like Breckenridge, Colorado and, and the Wisconsin Dells. It's just in Gatlinburg <laughs> because I would say Pigeon Forge is like the Dells. Well, yeah. And then Gatlinburg is like- Well, Gatlinburg still has, like, they've got the Ripley's Museum. They've got sort of stuff like that. Pigeon Forge. That's true. So Pigeon Forge is next to Gatlinburg. And Pigeon Forge is, it's where Dollywood is. And it is, it is roadside attraction after roadside attraction. It is like 50 mini golf places, 50 go-kart places. It's like Branson, Missouri. It's, It's a lot like Branson. 
but even more neon. It's just a big, giant, long, never-ending flat strip that takes you forever to drive through. The neon lights are bright in (laughs) Pigeon Forge, for sure. They are. They sure are. So they are two totally different experiences, and depending on what side of the park you're coming from, probably makes the most sense to stay on that side. But you could go either way. You could visit both areas if you want to, which I think is well worth it. Yeah, and I have to say, personally, the North Carolina Visitor Center was my favorite of the two, if we're talking visitor centers, was my favorite of the two because it had the replica of farm life attached to it with the cabin and the barn and the blacksmith. And we were able to kind of tie in life in the mountains with that particular visitor center. Plus it had that beautiful porch that you could sit on with those rocking chairs that looked out over all of that. I just really enjoyed that. And it was also a little bit quieter over there. It wasn't as busy as the Tennessee Visitor Center. And so I felt like I I had a little bit of space to breathe. What they've done is they've taken farm buildings from around the park and sort of moved them to create an outdoor farm exhibit. And they've got... Or outdoor life, like the life of of dwellers in the mountains in the 19th century. And it's along a a small creek, and it's really beautiful. There's There's also a mill over there. We didn't check out this mill, but we did check out a different mill. There's a mill that you can visit over there, and they show you how mills work, and they actually make the flower there and everything. And I, I agree that I, I really enjoyed the North Carolina side visitor center very much. Now I would say that the Tennessee visitor center was probably a better introduction to the park as a whole. Mm-hmm. It def- it had the video you could watch. I think it kind of was, it was also a little bit more active. It was attached and quickly accessible to a lot of the highlights of the park. And so I think if you're going to get sort of like from a, a national park overview of all the things you could do at the Smoky Mountains. The Tennessee Visitor Center might offer that a little bit more, but the North Carolina side kind of really gives you a glimpse into what life in the mountains was like. Yeah, so for me, if if I was to visit the Smoky Mountains and make a plan, say, uh, you know, three, four, five-day plan, the first thing I would do is go up to Clingman's Dome and get an overview of the park on that first day. The second day, I'd go to the North Carolina side and maybe do a couple of hikes on that side. Second day, I'd go over to the North Carolina side, visit that visitor center, maybe do a couple of hikes over there. And the third day, I think you would agree that our favorite part of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park is called Cades Cove. Hands down, my absolute favorite part of the trip. And Cades Cove is, it's a valley inside the park. You've got mountains on all sides of you, and it is just this deep valley right in the middle where if you get there early in the morning you can see tons of wildlife it is full of churches and old 1800s buildings well it represents the community that came into cade's cove in the 19th century it's like this 11 mile one-way loop trail and it is, it's a road that it's you a drive one way road so you don't want to go there on a really busy time you don't want to visit Cades cove on a saturday or sunday any other day of the week, you should be fine. Uh, but yeah, trafficking we, can back up quite a bit there. We were there during the week, and it was busy, but we weren't like bumper to bumper stopped. We were able to continuously move from one point to another. And so what you do is like they have, in addition to visually what you can see, you can also download the Cades Cove app, 
which you can listen to as you drive from one spot to another to get an overview of the spot that you're going to. So for instance, I think one of the first things on the tour is the John Oliver cabin. So you would listen to that section on the John Oliver cabin. Then you would arrive. You would be able to walk around it, do whatever they have open, get in the car, listen to the next destination. And for us with the kids, that was such a great way to educate them and educate ourselves on what we were going to see without having to be like, everyone come over here and let me read this plaque to you. And you're all going to stand here and listen and absorb this information and then go off. Right. You already know all about it. So you get there and you can explore. Yeah. And you're in the car and you're kind of contained and everyone's just sort of like sitting there. So that like audio sensory is a little bit more heightened. And so that was, I think, the my personal recommendation is that you absolutely must download that app to really be able to fully engage with Cades Cove. But then also, don't just drive from one point to another. There's a few places within this drive where you can pull off and just kind of get out and take a look like down into the valley, walk down into it and sort of just experience the cove yeah. on your own for a little bit. And wow, I can't, I mean, I can still visually see that moment where like the kids just took off running down into that valley and they were just i mean they had gone so far ahead of us and i didn't even care because it was amazing to see them running with the mountains all around them in a place that is so untouched by man i will never forget that and it's been two years since we've been there yeah and and you don't have to stop at all these stops along the way you can pick and choose the ones you want to stop at you can explore the buildings you want to you can get in your car and move on. But they're all worth stopping at. Like, I mean, this was such a highlight for me that, like, I can't imagine not stopping at everything and trying to absorb every bit of information I think there's like There's like 12 to 14 stops on the tour. I can't remember how many there are. But the final one is the Cades Cove Visitor's Center. And it has several buildings around it, including a different mill that is a working mill, and they have somebody in there running the mill. You can see the water being diverted to it. The big water wheel turning, take beautiful pictures of the water wheel. You can go in and you can see them actually milling wheat into flour. Yeah, that was really Really up close. I mean, up two feet from your face. Like there's specks of it flying out at you like you're so close to it. Yeah, the kids really got a lot out of that, I think. Yeah. And and the visitor center is is, is a nice, very, very small visitor center, but it's a great place to get a passport stamp, to get a magnet. To use the bathroom, and then you can sort of head out. Have your lunch, like, you know. So those are the sort of things that we enjoyed doing in the Smoky Mountains National Park. There are many, many hikes to along rivers, to many different waterfalls. Yeah, and we stopped at a few sort of like pull-off spots on the road and did some smaller hikes near the visitor center. And the thing about this particular park is that one trip to this park will never be enough. I don't think two, three, or four trips to this park would be enough to be able to do everything that you can do in the park. And so you do just kind of have to pick and choose, like, what are what is your focus here? Is it, like, wanting to get out on the trails and experience the park in that way? Is it doing a lot of the drives, hitting up the visitor center. You know, the time that we were there too, we also took a day and we went over to Dollywood because we thought, well, we've never we've never been we, to Dollywood. So we we have, might as well. We have some friends who are 
big theme park connoisseurs, even bigger than us and our love for Disney World. Shocking, I know. And they constantly say that Dollywood is one of their favorite parks. So we felt like we really needed to check it out. And Dollywood is a really well done. Yeah, we had theme a fun park. day for sure. It's interesting because it's it's the only theme park I think I've been to where it's almost like an IKEA. You get in and you ha- you have to take a path <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> through the park that is yeah. a specific route. You don't, you know, a lot of theme parks, you just kind of, you have your map and you go to the different lands. Dollywood, it's kind of one route through the park and then you end in, and yeah, you can go back around or whatever. If anyone's ever done something like Silver Dollar City in Branson, that's kind of what Dollywood reminds me a little bit of, except I like Silver Dollar City a little bit better than I liked Dollywood. But I think for, you know, for us... That was like a one and done kind of experience. I'm glad we went and checked it out. But I know the next time that we go to the Smoky Mountains, it won't be something that makes my like must do list. Yeah. And then on the North Carolina side, you can check out Asheville again and the Biltmore Estate, which is just this massive, gorgeous estate. And that will make it on my list (laughs) next time because it was on my list when we went, but it just didn't really work out with smaller people. And so the next time we go, I know they won't be so small and I can drag them through this and they still probably will go kicking and screaming, but you know, I don't care. (laughs) So the Gatlinburg Pigeon Forge area is sort of camping central. I mean, there are RV parks everywhere. Yes. Uh, There aren't a lot of options in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park if you want to have hookups. So There's very few options to have hookups in the park. If any, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I don't there think that be, you can do... I don't think there's water and sewer. But there might be some electric. I think there might be some electric. Yeah. But even that I'm not 100% sure on. And I'm sorry, we don't know the answer to yeah. that. But I know it was enough that even when we went, we didn't think staying in the park was at all an option for us. So we stayed off-site. We stayed at a campground called Camp LeConte Luxury Outdoor Resort. And I know, right? Like, <laughs> say that name five times fast. Don't be, uh, if you're somebody that doesn't like sort of the high-end RV parks, don't be afraid of that luxury outdoor resort. It is a very nice place, so I don't want to give you the wrong impression that I don't think it's luxury. But it is not It is not one of those places that is, you know, the super high-end $110 Yeah, it's not that campground that in New Orleans. Have, yeah, or or some of those places on the beaches in Florida where you have casitas and, and all that. But it is a really nice park, super clean. They mow the lawns very well. They blow the leaves off of every site before people arrive. They have the nicest bathrooms that we've ever visited at any campground still to this day. Yeah, and we were just, like I said, we were there um, in 2015 But we just had some friends who returned from the Smoky Mountains just a few weeks ago, and they stayed at this campground on our recommendation. And they said the same thing we're saying. This is like one of the nicest campgrounds that we have stayed at. It has clearly held up, and they have continued to maintain it and meet that standard that we remember from two years ago. And so, you know, I can't recommend this campground enough in this area if you're headed over there. Yeah, several it's a small park. Very small. A so lot of you're gonna want to book in advance. Um and the sites are a little bit tight, but the sites are gonna be tight anywhere you're gonna go yeah. in Gatlinburg. There's not gonna be a lot of space between you. Um you're not gonna be spending a lot of time at the park. But it is it's a great place to stay. No, it is and it had a nice I think they have space for like five or six tents. 
but they also had a great little playground. So, you know, they are set up to welcome families as well. And so don't, again, don't let the word like resort, like frighten you off as a family. They have, like they absolutely, have they have a pool. So there's plenty to do there. If you wanted to have a down day and stay at this campground, which our friends did, you absolutely will have plenty to do. They have Wi-Fi. So that's another great bonus as well. If you if you wanted to meet family, if you're going in your RV or if you don't have an RV, uh, but if you wanted to have other family members come, they have these really awesome safari tents there, which are they, they I mean, these are like super luxury tents that have beds in them with sheets and yeah after (laughs) after the buffalo river experience of this summer with my mom this may be the only way i ever get my mom back to a campground it's almost like a cabin (laughs) yeah they're really cool it's a cabin with soft walls (laughs) but here's a tip like i said best bathrooms i've ever had at a campground rv park owners campground owners if you are listening to this please or if you're thinking about building a campground right? Or you're going to be renovating a campground. Very, very simple thing. Put your bathrooms inside the main building and don't have their doors open to the outside with the bugs. That's the easiest thing you can do to make your bathrooms like 10 times better than any other campground bathrooms because they're not going to get nasty and dirty from people's muddy shoes and from all the bugs flying in and the spider webs and all that sort of stuff. It's giving me the heebie-jeebies. There's just like nothing worse than going into a bathroom and there's like a big giant June bug like on the window, or then it like attacks you and gets stuck in your hair. (laughs) God, (laughs) don't get me started. I think this place also had free coffee in the mornings. They had if you're if you go in a tent, they have a microwave up in the main building that you could get to use. Um, They had they had ping pong for the kids to play. I just can't say enough about it. I really liked it. And it's just outside of Gatlinburg, real quick drive into downtown Gatlinburg. Yeah, and a really quick drive into the park, too. Yeah. So we highly recommend that you visit Great Smoky Mountains National Park. It is really a do-not-miss park. It's just full of surprises around every corner, and it's it's a place that you should go to and go back to and plan on spending a good amount of time there. It's not sort of a one-day pass-through type place. But if you are heading that way, just take a drive through it and see, and you'll want to go back. Yeah, I'm already kind of dreaming of a return trip, especially after listening to our friends like sort of recount their time. And they were there in a very different time of year than us. We were there in the spring. They were going late summer, early fall. And I can't, I can't wait to get us back. So on that note, let's do this week's brain teaser. All right, my brain is ready. Starting at sea level, a woman reached the peak of a high mountain in less than two minutes using no climbing aids whatsoever. How? And here are your hints. She reached the top of the mountain entirely under her own power. Mountains are found in many different places, and she started from exactly sea level. I'm sorry, what? I totally just checked out on you. I was thinking about the Great Smoky Mountains. Um, can I read? Can I? I'll just look that over later and, and come up with a good answer for next week. <laughs> All right. I'm sure it was fascinating. I'm sorry. I'm just back. I'm back in the mountains and I'm back at Cade's Cove. And that's where my brain is right now. But good on that woman for getting to the top of that mountain. All right, everybody. That's it for this week's episode. Go tell the National Park Service you don't want them to raise the fees to $70. (laughs) And then after you do that, we would 
so appreciate a five-star review on iTunes, or maybe if you just gave us a little love on social media and shared us with your friends and family, anything you can do to get us in front of other people, we really appreciate it. So thank you for being here this week. We will see you next week. Bye.